welcome. All right, welcome everybody. We've got another episode of Lifestyle Medicine. Today we have Caitlin Thompson, who is the owner and founder of Entheozen, which is a playoff of right Entheogen. Mm-hmm. So Caitlin, give us a rundown of Entheozen, what you're doing, and how you got to where you are. Yeah, so um, Entheozen is a nutritional supplement company that I um, founded about five and a half years ago, and um, really we, we cater to brain and mood health. Um, our, our bigger sort of overarching theme is mental wellness. So we create products uh, based on cutting edge neuroscience principles um, with natural ingredients uh, that are safe and sustainable ways to manage and heal from and mitigate the effects of uh, depression, anxiety, low mood, brain fog. I mean, really just overall when the brain's not working, you don't feel happy. Um, and yeah, and, and just sort of a bigger mission of creating tools and sharing information and pioneering research that's going to empower people to take control of their mental health and um, have solutions that are effective and that are sustainable and um, aren't going to create some of the side effects that maybe antidepressants would. Yeah, absolutely. And with the, I guess, the impetus of this and like you starting this and going in this direction, was this a result of you um, having difficulties in that space and also potentially using pharmaceuticals and that not going well? Or what was the, like, what was the big push to go this direction? Yeah, so it's kind of an interesting um, story and in, in that it'll, it'll marry in um, my uh, sort of passion about psychedelics as well, which I'm sure we'll touch on. For sure. So um, when, I, um, when I was about like 15, 16, um, I got hit with, you know, substantial depression and anxiety. I mean, who isn't depressed yeah. when they're a teenager, you know? Sure. Um, and then I, I actually started smoking marijuana when I was like 17, and then I like, was feeling a lot happier and I'm like, okay, cool. And then, um, the age of 18, I started exploring with taking mind altering substances. I I started out with MDMA, like in the rave scene and, um, then quickly moved on to things like LSD, um, psilocybin, DMT, ayahuasca. And so it was actually, I was in my, my last year of, um, of my undergraduate degree in neurobiology and, I was like starting to, you know, I had some hard classes and so I was like, you know, I'm just going to take a little time off of like festivals and parties and focus on school to just get through this organic chemistry and all this calculus and stuff. Yeah. And what I found, um, I accidentally discovered that um, the longer I would go without a, a regular LSD experience, the more sort of chemically unraveled I was becoming. So I I was feeling like every seven to eight weeks after my last LSD experience, I would notice that I was just starting to feel really imbalanced and agitated and um, anxious and depressed. I'm like, that's weird. My life is the same. Like I'm, you know, yeah. it's not like anything catastrophic has happened. And it took about three or four times of this happening like clockwork at that seven to eight week mark. And I started to like put the dots together and I'm like, oh, I have like depression and anxiety that I've been medicating with psychedelic drugs for the last 
you know, four years, five years. Right. And I was like, holy cow. Um, and depression runs in my family. I have family members that have been on SSRIs for most of their lives. And uh, I always thought that I was just lucky and kind of skirted past it. So having this awareness that there was this inherent imbalance and it felt very much physiological because um, it wasn't really context related. So I was like, okay, it's great to know that psychedelics are effective for that, but I want to like really unwind the root of it because psychedelics are, you know, they're illegal and they um, require an investment of like all day and they're not always accessible. So I started to get really fascinated with the scientific literature on mood disorders and depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And um, in my sort of intuitive quest for finding something that was really addressing the root cause, I of course stumbled upon the literature around nutrition's role in um, brain and mood health. And I just kind of fell down this rabbit hole of scientific literature and um, started experimenting with a lot of different herbs and nutrients and then kind of got into the whole microbiome aspect of things and was exploring with, you know, probiotics and, and altering microbiota with different things. And it all kind of accidentally led to this really deep, long healing process of discovering that I actually had Lyme disease and, you know, I had all these chronic Oh, wow. autoimmune conditions for, for years, and I never even knew I was sick because I had always been told that you're fine, you're it's normal, right. but it didn't, it didn't seem normal for a young person to need to sleep 13 hours a day and still be able to nap under fluorescent lights in the school library at 10 a.m., you know? Right, right. Um, so, so then it, it kind of evolved into me... Um, being an advocate and, and a researcher and a, um, an educational speaker on cro chronic autoimmune conditions and chronic illness in general, which a lot of times people are experiencing depression and anxiety who have those conditions as well. Right. Um, so yeah, it was this beautiful unfolding process that I kind of just stumbled into and, you know, created Entheosin as a, a way to share and the, the information that I had collected from years of reading papers, going to conferences, talking with doctors, with naturopaths, with herbalists, with, with organic chemists, with psychedelic researchers, and kind of just like putting it all together and synthesizing the information in a way that um, provides an, a holistic approach to thriving and achieving mental wellness. Wow. So there's a lot there. Um, yeah, sorry. No, no, it's, it's great. It's great. I love it. Um, there's just, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> so um, backtracking a little bit. So for the people that don't know, you and I both know, but the word entheogen, if people don't know what that is, can you give a brief definition to that? So people that are not hip to that phrase, they know what you're talking about. Yeah. So an entheogen is a plant that induces a spiritual experience. The The root of it is Greek, I believe. And um, it, it actually translates to to generate the divine from within in mm. theo as in as in God. And Theological, in gen, right. Generate. Yeah. And so um, what it really is referring to is um, sort of psychoactive plants. So right. most commonly people will refer to um, things like psilocybin or ayahuasca or peyote as entheogens. Some people will even consider LSD an entheogen, even though it's um, synthetic and, and not 
necessarily existing in nature. Um, but also people will consider things like passiflora or passion flower or um, different herbs like kana entheogenic because they do have mild psychoactive properties um, in their plants. So, Very good. Excellent definition. Um, that'll give a framework for everybody who doesn't know. And talk to me a little bit more about the Lyme disease. So when you, how far along, <clears throat> excuse me, were you in your health journey? Like how far had you gone? How many years undiagnosed had you been suffering from that before you got the green light and were like, oh, something's wrong? Um, when I got an official diagnosis, I was, um, I think about 26 years old. I'm now 28. Wow. So it wasn't that long ago that, I mean, I, I kind of had accepted and knew that I had Lyme before that, yeah. but I wasn't getting a lot of support from friends or family. And so, and I was really just at, at a, a dark spot and like was debilitated, couldn't really work and support myself. And people were like, I just don't get it. Maybe you should drink coffee. And um, I wasn't getting a lot of support, so I spent thousands of dollars on diagnostic testing, literally just to prove that I actually had something wrong with me. Wow. Um, but it was probably about, um, you know, age 25 or so when I started to even recognize Lyme disease as a thing. And, uh, you know, I always thought, oh, you get bit by a tick, you get antibiotics right away, right. you get a rash. That's It's actually much more complex than that. And there's I mean, Lyme bacteria actually is affecting a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It lives in a lot of people um, who aren't sick, and it's it's one of the you know pieces of the puzzle in a lot of people that have chronic illness. And really, Lyme disease is just kind of a, a name, a, a syndrome more than anything right. than an actual infection. Um, but it's a very complicated illness and it turns out you can actually acquire it from a lot of different vectors other than ticks. Uh, there's some, some, um, skepticism about, you know, maybe it's, uh, sexually transmitted because it is a spirochete just like chlamydia is. Oh, and wow. it does, it has been detected in sexual fluids. It's not clear if it's transmittable yet, but there's likely a chance that it could be sexually transmitted. And, um, and also there's been plenty of documented incidents of women giving birth uh, and passing it on to their child, which in my case, I think is how I acquired it. Mm -hmm. um, and at the end of the day, I think it doesn't have that much to do with the Lyme organism itself. I think right. uh, with chronic illness, you start with a compromised individual, whether there is um, trauma or, or uh, chronic stress or um, a physical toxin that's compromising the person. Yeah. Bacteria, they just take opportunity, and if, if you're not able to keep a boundary with how much they can grow, then they create you know, infections, more or less. Right, then there's a problem, right? Then they, they get a hold in the body and they have the upper hand. Well, that's fascinating because that's the first I've ever heard of Lyme potentially being um, entering the body in that way. So when, this is kind of a nice segue into the other, the other piece that I know that you um, you practice. You're also a combo practitioner, yeah, and you facilitate that for people. And I had um, who I think you know, Neil Hennigar was episode two of Lifestyle Medicine, and he's a combo practitioner. And we talked pretty much exclusively about combo, but mm -hmm. I, would I would like to touch back on that because it's always good to hear about these things from a different person through a different lens, and just to get a different framework. So part of what I had talked with Neil about and what we had touched on and with other combo practitioners that I had just kind of bumped elbows with 
one of the things they talked about was seeing tremendous um, effect with the treatment of Lyme disease with the use of combo. That was like the big, the big showstopper was people that I know who have Lyme. um, That was originally why I referred them to practitioners of combo. I was saying, I've heard this and it's all uh, sort of secondhand, but I've heard very powerful stories about people sometimes fully reversing Lyme's with the use of combo. So did your diagnosis of Lyme put you into dialogue or in search of combo or did combo play a role in helping you? I would love to hear that piece. Yeah, so I will say that I'm a practitioner and a healthy person because of that medicine. Um, Not exclusively, of course, I did a lot of other work that was um, crucial for completing the process. Um, What's interesting is I actually did the frog medicine before I realized that Lyme was a factor. I was just starting to figure out that maybe I actually was sick for a long time, Mm. right when the the combo showed up or combo, tomato, tomato. Um, And it actually, I feel like was an ally in helping me um, uproot the deeper understanding of what was happening in my my physical body. Um, Yeah, I would say it was the single most powerful tool to help me recover from my chronic illness, and that's why I've dedicated a lot of my time to it this day. And of course, uh, I attract a lot of people with Lyme disease and chronic illness because yeah. they resonate with my story and recovery. And um, yeah, I continue to see it as this incredible tool that's completely unrivaled by any other treatment that currently exists. Um, I mean, diet is important, trauma work's important. Sure. Um, antimicrobial herbs is important, but I just, as far as bang for your buck, I have never seen anything that provides as much traction forward as this medicine for chronically ill people. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a powerhouse. I mean, the research on it is obviously developing and, you know, the research that I'm hearing about and, and you know, for me, it's always kind of a, a double-edged sword. Like, I think research is incredibly important. It's absolutely important in the West in terms of how things gain traction. And there's also a big piece of I love hearing about people's personal experience. That's always a big selling point for me because a lot of things for years, right, won't be they won't be given the green light by the FDA or by something for many, many years. And right. people, people can still be having tremendous effect. So I always listen to people's personal experience and like listen to their personal testimony about that. So when you've, um, in your experience with the combo, what have you seen from people, you know, you facilitated a lot of ceremonies for people, you've administered combo to, to people. So what have you seen in terms of, um, I guess, people's healings? You know, what have they, what have you seen from people that started sure. taking combo? What has been some of the interesting tidbits that you've come across? Yeah, I'll start with saying I've seen a lot of weird shit, man. Um, <laughs> yeah, fair it's enough. a it's a weird weird substance for sure. It is. Um, yeah, you know, part of it is it's I'm not quite sure about everyone because I, as I I do follow up with them a few days after, but long term, I I really kind of you know don't know what what their life is looking like after that. Mm-hmm. But from the little bits I've had, um, people felt like it was profoundly helpful in, in raising their baseline of, of health. Uh, a lot of people report 
not getting like sick, not getting colds or flu for extended amounts of time, which is not like them because they're usually quite immune and compromised people. I did have one client um, with Epstein-Barr who was debilitated with that virus and she actually flew in to see me from Reno and um, she did two sessions with me, two two days in a row, back-to-back sessions and it's been a year and she's still in full remission from her Epstein bar, like those two sessions cured her. I mean, I shouldn't say cure, but like really they, they resolve the symptoms. And, um, to this day, she's a healthy, thriving person and attributes all of it to the combo. So, um, I, I've seen people that, you know, maybe have a bowel movement once a week, and that's been, you know, they've been hospitalized over the years for constipation. Wow. And they come and do one session and they have bowel movements daily afterwards. Um, wow. I've seen people, I've seen exorcisms happen pretty much. Um, you know, people screaming. Um, I've had people who came for detox purposes, but, you know, had no intention of having a spiritual experience. And they're laying on the mat afterwards, and all of a sudden they start talking to me about an incident that happened to them as a child when their mother yelled at them, and how they really see that that stuck with them and it affected them. I mean, it's just it's very weird, and a yeah. lot of the the healing and and such really it starts it unfolds in the next days and weeks after the experience. It's it's not so much like ayahuasca where maybe you purge and it feels very consequential and you're like oh that was I knew exactly what I was purging and I had this vision it's not like that it's kind of like you pay up front and then and then the next days and weeks there's this really beautiful gentle unfolding and unveiling process and all suddenly stuff just starts to get bubbled up and pulled to the surface and it's right there and you really can't escape it and it can kind of be very catalytic uh, and a bit disruptive certainly for me not everybody but I kind of had a life meltdown after that um, Mm -hmm. which I always say I was bulldozing my cottage to build a castle (laughs) and I mean it it catalyzed um, a a long transformative process that required a lot of work and pain and like you know leaping with leaps of faith you know giving up certain patterns and beliefs and um behaviors in order to jump to a new standard of being but it was a difficult process but you know I was also like 25 years old when that was happening which you know these are kind of formative years of your life in your 20s and there's a lot of growing and um, breaking down and rebuilding happening anyways so absolutely when so man there's just so much here it's great I, I love hearing this your experience because I think there's a lot of people who are curious about combo I think it's a piece that they're they've either heard about it um, you know through podcasting through through side channels and then are, are curious if they're you know a candidate for it or what how it could help them potentially so you know my personal experience I've, I've only sat with combo twice and when I sat with it both times the first ceremony was very difficult in terms of my body had a lot of resistance and I, mm-hmm. I finally kind of let go. Second day I resisted less and it went better. It was an easier process, still rough, you know, obviously combo is pretty, pretty rough. <laughs> but, um, but I noticed, you know, what you're talking about that, that baseline level where it feels like you're something about your internal 
health frequency. It just seems like it gets leveled up because that was the first yeah. thing that I noticed when I had my, I, I purged, I, you know, I sweating and I just, I felt terrible for that 20 minutes. And I remember I laid down for another 20 or 30. And when I got up, I remember thinking like I had done something very, it felt like I had been like exercising for days. That's kind of, like, <laughs> I, I thought like that euphoria, that kind of endorphin rush of like, wow, I feel like I've, yeah. been, I've been training or something. And so when I came out, I felt fantastic. And that was, um, and that stayed, you know, that was a, that was a feeling. I thought, I mean, I'm due for another one and I would like to get another ceremony, but I was surprised at how a, tw- a short 20 minute window of hell brings about this long standing feeling good. You know, that was, that was just kind of amazing to me. Can you talk about the, the concept? Um, I had a person just recently ask me about this and I, I, I spoke on it as much as I know, but I would love to hear your thoughts. This idea of Panema, which is kind of the indigenous idea about the sort of like what it purges from your body. Um, it's, I've, yeah. heard, I've heard that phrase and I've heard it described as sort of like an um, energetic phlegm. I've heard it described as um, a, a kind of a form of bad luck. But I would love to hear your take on that in relation to to combo and what how it relates to it. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a ton to say about Panema, yeah. um, uh, you know, other than kind of what it says on on Wikipedia is <laughs> is it's kind of like um, a a funk, a, a bad luck, a, a dark cloud of energy. And you know, I always find um, I really like to bridge the gaps between science and spirituality, and yeah. and kind of see the congruence between them. And my interpretation of um, Panema on like a sort of a biochemical physiological manifestation is maybe like inflammation and microbial dysbiosis mm-hmm. because those things definitely cause lethargy and brain fog and um, you know where you're just not like you're feeling heavy you know you're not feeling light you're not feeling quick-witted and um, it's this very like low-level chronic inflammatory sort of situation in the body. So that's kind of my interpretation of what yeah. Panema is on a, a more Western scientific model yeah. of things. And and I also don't think that those are separate. I think that, you know, um, they're, they're different versions of the same truth, you know? I agree completely. And I think that's a good way to look at it nowadays, especially because I think what I think with the advancement of these medicines, especially indigenous medicines, as they come into the culture, American culture more, I think Americans, you know, we kind of rely, science is like the new religion. You know, science is seen as like the holy altar that can't be... Can't dogma, be, man. It's fully, <laughs> it's fully dogma, right? And, it, and to a yeah. fault nowadays where it's, you, you know, if you step outside of it, you're just a loon. You know, you're, you're seen as crazy if you, if you question and, and not necessarily believe every single study that comes out. But I think it's really important to talk about these substances from both sides because I think it gives people an access point too. I think Americans kind of need that mental stimulation to be like, okay, what are you talking about? Or is this this new age fluff? You know, like where's the grounding? Where's the standing? Does this actually have any relevance to the American mind? And I think that's important. So I think it's good to talk about it like that. I really do. Like I've seen people not talk about it. And it's not that it can't have merit and effect, but I think that there's more traction had when people talk about it from the Western perspective too. It's important. Yeah. We have to use the language that people feel familiar with. And currently, many people, not all, trust me, but uh, (laughs) many people find science to be the way to validate whether something is true or not to them. And certainly with with combo medicine, there's a lot of, I mean, thousands of papers on the individual peptides. But that's not the way people are ingesting this. And there's absolutely 
no research on people receiving this medicine through the traditional means. There's a couple case reports of people that, you know, maybe went to the emergency room because they drink too much water or something dumb like that. Yeah. But there really isn't any studies at all. And being a scientist, that kind of like hurts me. I'm like, Jesus Christ. But um, yeah, I'm in the process right now of kind of transitioning from being a full-time practitioner to being a researcher that's working with practitioners yeah. because that really feels more my place in this, this Cambo world. Um, so yeah, I've been collecting data since August and um, we just applied for our first IRB actually to do some retroactive data analysis, just really pre preliminary stuff like demographic information like you know how often are people fainting how often are they having bowel movements right um you know is there any correlation between face swelling and gender or number of points or just right. looking for any connections there at all right um and then in, in the future um our intention is to um start by administering wellness scales or challenging experience scales or mood depression scales like you know mm. any sort of really simple just like survey before and after or even you know long-term follow-ups right just so that we can even record that there is substantial you know mental health benefit to this medicine and like you were describing about um you know things becoming pharmaceuticals and going through that health process it's kind of tricky to do uh, research on a substance that you don't actually really intend to have become a a drug by the FDA standards right. because if you're going to work on any population that's not considered healthy, um, you have to apply for an investigational drug application and mm. um, there's there's no way that the FDA or anyone would ever fund that because why do that when you can patent a peptide? Um, you can't patent, you know, the whole secretion and it's you know, you can't get them from frogs outside of their native habitat. So right. there's also, you know, while the frogs are plentiful and in fine supply now, there is sustainability concerns about if, th if this were to become a widespread uh, medicine, is there really enough frogs um, to sustain high concentrations of this secretion right. without compromising their ability to defend themselves? Right, right. It's a really, it's such a um, important point to consider nowadays, especially sustainability in general. I think just with the population of people, how much, um, you know, the world is just kind of a crazy place. And yeah, population plays a role, right? And then in the processing and the standardization of medicines, you know, one of the interesting things that I talked about with Neil when we um, had that conversation in episode two was he was talking about that uh, when they had pulled some of these frogs out into laboratories and had contained them and, and, and taken the secretions, Apparently, the medicine wasn't working the same. It was greatly diminished, apparently, which was sort of pointing to, you know, we talked about this, but it seems like the frogs are interfacing with something in the environment or just their yeah. natural habitat facilitates some kind of physiology in their body to where they actually produce the appropriate peptides in that secretion. So he um, was saying, he's like, in a, in a way, it's almost like nature has built a fail-safe mechanism. Like, you can't really take the frog out of its home and bastardize it and process it and standardize it and expect it to still do what it's going to do which was right. kinda, which was kind of interesting i thought that's really fascinating that it wasn't working as well um in that that's certainly the, that's certainly the rumor um mm -hmm. i don't know that i've actually seen that to be valid and true like i've heard mm -hmm. that but i haven't seen a paper uh, yeah. you know writing Same. about that i have actually read a paper about 
um, then having frogs in captivity and then doing bioassays of the secretion that they took from the mm. captive frog. And yeah, it might be different as far as a clinical application of sure. actually administering the, the medicine, but there were certainly still peptides in there. And the, you know, they, they talked about the frog's diet and it's eating crickets with vitamins sprinkled on it and shit like that. So, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I do wonder if that's actually true or if that's something that maybe somebody made up so that people mm. wouldn't even try to take them out of captivity, which I'm okay with that, you know? Yeah, fair um, enough. But it's good but, to understand like where the, yeah, where the, where the story comes from. Yeah, yeah I wonder enough. how true anything is. And, um, yeah, something and also really interesting that I came across in a paper that I don't know that really anyone in the Cambo community realizes, but there's different peptides and different concentration of peptides in different glands on the frog's body. For example, wow. the tibial gland um, on their legs mm -hmm. has the, the highest potency and it has peptides that aren't found in the other glands like behind the head and such. And that's likely an adaptive Thing, defense mechanism because if if you're trying to run away and a snake's got your legs that's you want it. that to be right. your strongest you know uh defense so right um you know when you're getting these this highly vari variations of um potency on a stick or between sticks um no one's considering which glands these are coming from and so right yeah there's there's just a lot like i mean it's a lot of hearsay a lot of rumor mm -hmm. um with pretty much zero science for anyone to grab onto and mm -hmm. that unfortunately I think also creates risk and, and illegitimacy. Mm -hmm. um, so it'd be nice if there could be a sort of a dignified way of bringing some facts to the community without like bastardizing right. the sacredness of what it really is. Right, it's a fine line, right, to figure out how to, to, to walk that line and to dance it effectively where people are still benefiting but without damaging, right? Yeah, or exploiting. Exploiting, for sure. it. right. That's really important. Well, um, Caitlin, we had talked about in our call before this podcast just a little bit about your, your science background. So, why don't you tell people a little bit about that? Because that was interesting. You come from, your background is in, what was it again? It's in neurobiology. Yeah. So, that was sort of your foundation. Um, you kind of you come at this from a science perspective to, to a degree, and you're, you're wanting to validate it that way, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm not attached to validating anything because at mm -hmm. the end of the day, my experiences are more important to me than what a, what a paper says. But um, I, I do think that um, it kind of clears the air with controversy. Um, you sure. know, is this safe? Is this effective? Um, you know, I think it's nice to have to be able to share information with others in a in a language that they're gonna feel good about receiving mm -hmm. it in, which is science for some people. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I have always been fascinated by life, you yeah. know, nature, animals, plants as a child, and, you know, kind of just like chose a major, like, well, whatever, biology sounds cool, yeah. and then actually found myself really into it. And, you know, in my, in my undergraduate, when I was going to college and studying biology, I was also taking a lot of psychedelics. Yeah. I was going to Burning Man. I mean, by the age of 21, I was going to Peru for ayahuasca retreats by myself and, yeah. um, you know, really kind of started early in my, my spiritual exploration and um, was simultaneously learning about, you know, molecular biology and organic chemistry and neurobiology while I was having these really opening sort of period of my life. 
And it was actually a lot the psychedelics that like really inspired me and fast helped me become fascinated with science because I saw the spirit in everything. Um, I remember being in biochemistry and and we're learning about these very specific you know pathways and binding of proteins and how they fold and how they change their conformation based on this electrical you know bonding that you know the electron moves here blah blah it's complex and I'm looking at it and I'm like how could anyone learn this shit and not think like not have a spiritual experience realizing the intelligence of all of this like and I know that's different for a lot of other people they see it more as like an algorithmic like yeah. pattern that yeah. fell into place through trial and error right. but I, I think I think that's a, sort of um, underestimating the the intelligence of how nature has um, put itself together in the most brilliant way. So learning about science actually made me more spiritual and not religious. There's a difference. Um, But yeah, really just appreciating the brilliance of nature and the the algorithmic intelligence um, and and scientific manifestations of consciousness. Yeah. But recently um it's just funny because these these questions absolutely like I, I i agree with you that that idea of you can see a design right there's there's something about the functionality of how things work at a molecular level and life in general i think is just yeah I, I, you and i are on the same page my daughter recently we were outside <clears throat> and we were talking about something um we said something to the effect of like you know my heart feels good or we were she said something like that we were looking at ants and she goes papa do they have hearts mm. uh, and then i was like yeah. And she's like, they, and then we started talking. She had questions, you know, like, do they have insides? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, but they're so little, you know, <laughs> there's like, yeah. how, how do these little tiny working parts fit in there? I was like, that's a good question, baby. I said, I don't know. <laughs> you know, at least I said, it's, it's, you know, it seems designed, but in any case, um, the other piece I want to ask you about is receptivity to, to, I guess this topic and I guess these, these substances. So when I have talked about it, people for the most part, um, and I think it's how you deliver the story, of course, but I've tried to talk about it in a rational way. I've talked about it from a personal experience way. Um, I don't know if you've seen some of my, my previous stuff that I've put out, but you know, in the last year, I peeled back a little bit because I feel like after a year I got a lot out of it, but I sat with psilocybin quite a bit, about mm. nine times over the course of a year, and it was strictly from a therapeutic perspective. I wasn't looking, it wasn't a recreational thing for me. It was. I was struggling and I wanted help and I, and I was also helping a couple people kind of, you know, get ushered into it. Um, and so, so far receptivity, like when I talk about it, it seems it's pretty good. People are actually interested. It seems like people are wanting to hear about it. It's an interesting topic. They want to hear about the altered states. They want to hear about how it could potentially be relevant to them. And I would love to hear your, yeah, your dialogue with it thus far. Have, have you hit, um, what I would call the, the Bible Belt Rebellion, you know, where people are just like, no, this is totally like the devil. You know, this is bad to be doing this or to be, you know, partaking in these kinds of things because I know that culture is out there and I've, um, I've heard about it and I've seen it more on online content, but I'm just curious what your, yeah, how has it been received you talking about this stuff, uh, you know, your dialogue with it, what's that been like? Yeah, so I've certainly seen um, a pretty rapid change in the public um, just in the last five years and I think a lot of that has to do with the publicity and the traction that um, the research is getting and organizations like MAPS and the Beckley Foundation and 
um, just the, the science that's coming out because it's like, okay, you guys wanted science, here it is. Right. And it's like you can argue with it, but you you look like a, a silly, you know, little person um, that's you know, attached to their paradigm. Right. And um, certainly in the beginning, I think there was more pushback and, and more resistance. Um, and I also was younger and maybe people didn't find me to be a person of authority at that point. Sure. Um, but I just continued to share because um, I really felt that there was no shame around any of the experiences that I was having. And I felt like my intent to share them was, was pure. And because of that, I just had no... Um, reservation about sharing my truth because I just didn't I wasn't convinced that that what I was doing was wrong even though it might have been illegal mm -hmm. and um, I just kept sharing like authentically and definitely in the beginning people would really try to put me in a box and try to figure out yeah who I was because they're like well you use drugs you must be a loser you must be an addict For you sure. must be but then I was able to show up in ways with integrity, with kindness, with you know fun, with intellect, yeah. with um, accomplishment, with competency, yeah. and it just kind of threw people for a loop. And then as I've you know grown and stepped more into my power and a place of authority to be able to speak on these things, I get a lot less pushback. But yeah. I also think times are just changing, like. Yep. The amount of exposure that we've seen in the media yep. over the last three years, especially, is yeah. just is exponential. And it's like, look, guys, like, are you going to deprive people of something that is effectively going to treat this horrible condition that we don't have current methods that are effective? Like, if you say yes, you're a jerk, you know? Yeah. Like, like, your closed-mindedness is hurting other people. Don't be selfish. Don't be a jerk. Let the science speak for itself, and you know it'll go through the steps of any mm. other drug that people are on. Yeah. And you know why is it okay for an antidepressant to go through, but not MDMA? You yeah. know. Yeah, legitimate. I mean, I think that's the. I mean, that's the. This what I would call the social propaganda from so many years. You know, when I was growing up, I'm older than you. You know, I'm 37, and I was born in '81, and you know, through the '80s and the '90s, there was so much of the. And I, and I think, of course, right, there was definitely abuse in the culture and there was the say no to drugs movement but then I think it was there was a distinction right where there's a classification of these things being lumped together you know um, you know cannabis still you know in the same schedule as heroin and these kinds of things where it's like okay Wild. <laughs> like let's all take a step back and be reasonable for a minute and like let's not like let's be reasonable please because I feel yeah. like that's getting lost sometimes so I think with the the advancement of this stuff, it's important, right, to, to, to talk about it, to get people to consider it differently than the way it was presented in, say, the 80s and 90s, the way it was really pushed. To, and I get that, right? I'm not, you know, I really do, but I think um, I agree with you. I think the times are shifting. And MAPS, which is just amazing, I'm, I, I track all of that um, information and I track them. So with, I guess with the psychedelic use, what are your thoughts on, because I talk about this, but I would love to hear how you kind of frame this. When I have talked to people about psychedelic use and, and primarily as a way, uh, I want to be careful with my words, not to counteract the way we think in American culture, but I maybe harmonize and balance. 
there's sort of a, like, this has been my experience is when I've sat with psychedelics, I feel like, you know, naturally I'm an artist. I'm, I'm like intuitive, emotional, you know, abstract in my thinking. But I think the West, we're very linear, we're very compartmentalized, we're very straightforward, and um, that can be very good and it can be very detrimental. And it seems like psychedelics kind of put you into that realm where you're being forced to confront the abstract, the nonlinear, the um, amorphous, you know, the formless, like all of that is sort of in the forefront. And if nothing else, it seems like people have really they benefit from that, even if they don't understand it. They're, they've just been exposed to a different filter, right? There's there's our 3D reality filter that we're kind of always doing. And then you go down that road for a little while and you're like, wow, that's a completely different way to feel and experience the world. So for that alone, I just I think for looking through a different lens, I think it's good for people. Uh, oftentimes it's not for everybody, but I think it's good for a lot of people. So what do you think in terms of the psychedelic movement, the advancement of psychedelics and these psychotropic substances? Like what do you, what role do you think it play it plays and why is it important? Ooh, it's a very loaded question. Yeah. Um, I see a pretty widespread application for them, yeah. both in, in, in physical medicine, you know, for, I, I do a lot of lectures on like um, psychedelics for autoimmune yeah. conditions because there's anti-inflammatory and immune modulating properties and antimicrobial properties and like, I mean, there's a whole untapped sort of like field of medicine that's not even psychiatric that let's, let's bookmark that let's to. bookmark that keep going bookmark okay. bookmark bookmark that autoimmune and psychedelics we'll touch on that in a minute but yeah keep going yeah and then um you know of course there's like psychiatric conditions which is getting a lot of the attention and resources right now yeah. um and then there's potential for them to actually really alter paradigms in um, human behavior and culture mm -hmm. um, and in effect influence art, influence war, influence compassion, influence spiritual practices or the creation of new spiritual practices. Um, and and I also, I'm personally not opposed to people using it recreationally. I think sometimes people are like, well, if it's recreational, it's not okay. You have to be sick to sure. need it. For sure. Which I think is like a, also not a model that's serving, you know, why not take preventative medicine? Why not keep yourself well instead of, you know, yeah. justifying a medicine when it's too too far and you, you know, hit a, a wall? Um, I think, you know, you can find a lot of healing and nourishment through recreation with intention and responsibility. Yeah. Um, I mean, I see them as really tools that can catalyze a lot on this planet. Um, you know, you're talking about this uh, sort of ability for them to pull people out of these rigid patterns of thinking, and that's a very real measurable thing with psychedelics. They are disruptive to the brain. They increase sort of chaos, and they disrupt the a very rigid networking patterning that the brain puts into place in order to create routine so that a lot of things can be unconscious so that we free up more bandwidth to you know focus on more conscious things yeah. um, and there's actually a word for you know the this system it's called the default mode network i don't know if you're familiar with it no. it's um it's a it's a network consists of a series of brain regions that communicate between each other and the the default mode network is it's there to sort of like um, lock in a pattern um, of consistency to filter out information. So you're talking about this filter. It's 
just a filter, really, because um, there's so much sensory data coming through, yeah. and your brain's like, all right, let's let's see what's actually important. Is a lion about to kill me? Is someone <laughs> saying my name across right. the room? Right, right. Um, what information is actually um, worth consciously, you know, taking in? And um, it sometimes can get too rigid and too stuck. The connectivity yeah. can actually become too strong. And that's when you start to get things like rumination um, and depressive thoughts and you feel stuck or stagnant. Right. And so the psychedelics, along with other alternative therapies such as float tanks, such as mm. meditation practice, um, and probably also combo, I would assume, and, and maybe even some herbs and stuff. Who knows what else? Right. Exercise maybe. But they they all seem to disrupt the strong connectivity of the default mode network, which is where you have the disruption happening where they can step back and get some fresh perspective because they're suddenly not running the same autopilot program that they were stuck in for the last five years. And they're like, oh, wow, I, I actually can, you know, see the see a different point of view and, and have compassion for this situation or whatever. Um, and also because they're disruptive to brain networks that have been, you know, holding down the fort, right. um, they also disrupt our ability to suppress uh, painful memories and such. And mm. it's really in that disruption, we disrupt our coping mechanisms for just blocking off emotional pain. And through that is where you have the it coming up and out and able to be resolved and worked with and um, that's you know one of the sort of ways that trauma and PTSD and stuff um, gets a lot of benefit from the psychedelics. Is just like you can't you right. can't like stuff it down anymore. It, it gets inherently just like flies up to the surface because the structure to, to suppress it is no longer in place. Right. Yeah. Quite quite literally confronted with what has been buried. Right. What's what's been down there or not not functioning well. Um, it's really interesting what you said, and just as kind of a, a side question, but it's 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 in relation to what you were just talking about. Are you familiar with? Have you read about Leonardo da Vinci's brain at all? Like they've they've no. So da Vinci, the reason that I'm talking about this is this brain neural connection. So Leonardo da Vinci was one of the you know ultimate geniuses of all time, and he was an artistic genius. But what they found was you know he had he was a really accomplished scientist and was innovative in in sciences. He could sing incredibly well. He could dance. He could play right. He could. Um, he was amazing at mathematics. The guy had his both feet fully planted in science and art. And the only area he struggled, like a normal person, shouldn't even say struggle. He could still do it. Was language. So mm -hmm. if he sat down to learn French, he was as slow as the average person. But that was pretty much the only area he was. And that what they speculate was that his the left and right hemispheres of his brain were firing damn near perfect, like 50-50, you know, or like 49-51. Oh. Like they were so close, which is where they say true genius resides, is right when the left and right hemispheres of the brain, that neural um, membrane, whatever you want to call it, between those two hemispheres, they connect and they link. Corpus callosum. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so when they when they link up appropriately, right, and it's balanced, we get this really expansive integrative thinking that can be applied, right, in a linear way or in an abstract way. And it makes me think about this because I think – 
what you're talking about. Um, say that. What was the network called again? The Cor- Corpus Colossum. It's like a big bundle of nerves that oh, no, connects no. the signals between. Oh, oh okay. the de- default default mode network. Default yeah. mode network. But the, thank you for yeah. the Corpus uh, Colossum. That, yeah. That's great to know too. Um, yeah, that default mode network. I mean, that's even the phraseology of that makes me think about so many. You know, when I think about like politics and I think about, um, you know, politicians or, or, or anyone in any field, I, I guess, getting so rigid in their thinking, like you said before, right? Science has become dogma now. It's, it's like the new religion, right? And if you question it or go against it or whatever, there can be just this huge rail back, you know, where people are just like, wait, 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 you can't question this thing that's infallible, more or less. And it yeah. makes me think about you know, all these different fields of people getting so rigid, so stuck and so glued to their position about being right or being in the know or whatever it is. I mean, I think that's why it's so important for us because I think what the, what that happens, at least at the cultural level, what I've seen with people is people stop communicating, right? It's just like the insides of our brain, right? Like one side, we compartmentalize, we shut down and people, right? People that disagree even, it's like people don't talk anymore. They're not communicating anymore. And it's because people are so pitted and they're so ingrained and got their feet so buried in the sand with their position. They're not willing to to budge. You know, they're not willing to actually walk in someone else's moccasins and listen, you know, or to, to, to like push outside that envelope and be like, let's just hear another person's experience and let's see what that's like and, you know, integrate. And I think that's the piece I've seen with the psychedelics that are so powerful is just that that default mode network. I love that phrase. I'm totally going to look that up now. <laughs> um, but pulling people out of that, right? That seems like a pretty reasonable um, reason <laughs> to do it, like a pretty good reason to, to potentially dialogue with these things. Um, so with this, okay, with this psychedelic thing, let's go back to um, the autoimmune piece. That's really fascinating. So yeah. you said that, there are, what they're seeing is potentially, is this so psychedelics potentially helping autoimmune conditions? Is that the, some of the research you've seen? So I'll tell you, nobody's doing research on this. There's like uh, one okay. guy that I know who's kind of on the same kick that I am and we, we talk uh, about it sometimes, but mm-hmm. uh, he's published a couple of um, papers just looking at uh, immunomodulation and um, cytokines, inflammatory cytokines and stuff in response mostly to DMT and 5-MeO-DMT mm-hmm. with the Sigma-1 receptor. Um, but I've just been collecting a lot of um, evidence that there is something there that needs to be investigated. And I've been putting it, I've been synthesizing all the information. And of course, autoimmune conditions are very multifaceted. It's never caused from one thing. Sure. Um, but most often there's an element of trauma and an autonomic nervous system disruption. Mm-hmm. There's usually um, some sort of toxin implicated, um, whether it's like a food allergen or mold exposure right. or metals or something. Right. And there's there's almost always some organism involved or lots of organisms involved in dysbiosis. And honestly, I think it all originates from the trauma. That's been my experience mm-hmm. dealing with clients and in my own personal work. Um, but there's a lot of multifaceted ways that psychedelics can kind of address all these different pieces of autoimmunity. And what I found is there's some evidence that there's anti-inflammatory effects. There's reduction in, in things like tumor necrosis factor alpha, TNF alpha, and some of the interleukin pro-inflammatory cytokines. There's also been elevation of anti-inflammatory cytokines, um, 
and then there's immune modulation that's happening too um, through a couple different mechanisms. So we actually, there's a ton of literature on how neurotransmitters are found to be immune modulating molecules and actually depending on the tissue, the same, you know, for example, serotonin binding to the 5-HT2A receptor, which is the target of most psychedelic drugs, actually has different effects depending on what type of cell in the body, what type of immune cell, where, where the tissue is located, which is fascinating. Wow. So serotonin seems to, to have some sort of influence on um, immune modulation in a whole variety of ways, everything from, um, you know, inflammatory cytokine to um, apoptosis to cell um, repair, I mean, all sorts of different immune responses. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these compounds are binding to receptors that are endogenously in there to bind to neurotransmitters. And so there's some stuff going on for sure um, that, you know, these psychedelics could be modulating a lot of downstream stuff. And I just stumbled upon a paper recently that shows that um, serotonin is actually able to epigenetically add itself to DNA like a tag in the same way that we have seen methyl and acetyl groups added to DNA histones, which will change the transcription of a gene and change protein, um, you know, expression and, um, you know, essentially is epigenetic. And, uh, you know, there's also some antimicrobial properties to some of the psychedelics, um, the one we know the, sort of the best at this point is like the, the harmala alkaloids in the ayahuasca vine mm-hmm. and, um, you know, San Pedro and peyote mm-hmm. have showed, shown to be effective against things like MRSA. Um, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of these people have chronic infections. They have gut dysbiosis. They have overgrowth in their, in their gut. And so having a sort of um, antimicrobial effect, there's also anti, antiviral effects, antifungal effects for yep. things like candida and herpes viruses, Epstein-Barr. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the most important piece, I think, is the fact that they are so clearly useful in reprogramming trauma in the way that the autonomic nervous system yeah. is stuck in this sympathetic state right. because that's really what's causing the autoimmune condition, in my opinion, is a chronic stuck sympathetic state um that just makes you a sitting duck for organisms um and and everything is inflamed and so it's more reactive and it just it's just kind of spirals out of control until next thing you know you have fibromyalgia you have crohn's you have um you know even even depression and anxiety i kind of think a lot of them are somewhat autoimmune mechanism related and yeah the psychedelics um they there's a lot of just uncharted territory they're looking at just the immune system and inflammatory processes. Um, and there is a pretty deep connection between something like aversive childhood experiences or ACEs mm-hmm. and childhood trauma and the likelihood of developing a chronic illness and an autoimmune disease. Wow. Uh, so we know that trauma, just by the science, does increase your likelihood of developing a chronic illness. Um And, you know, another sort of little side thing is, you know, things like psilocybin and DMT, they're very close to serotonin and tryptophan and Mm -hmm. tryptamines. And bacteria 
are largely responsible uh, for making most of the serotonin in our bodies. So most mm -hmm. of our serotonin is produced in our gut. And the difference between DMT and psilocybin and serotonin is not a lot. It's like one tiny little functional group. Um, and I suspect that, you know, these bacteria, they're creating serotonin byproducts either as a metabolic waste product or as a means of signaling to other bacteria or interacting with their environment. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder, you know, what their response is to some of these very similar analogs to serotonin like DMT, like psilocin, because I suspect that if they have the hardware to bind to serotonin and chemically participate with that molecule, they probably do for psilocin, for psilocybin, for DMT. So I would love yeah. to give some, back, some LSD to some bacteria and see what happens. <laughs> Well, I'll be I'll be sitting attentively waiting to hear about, about yeah. that. Yeah, it could change microbial behavior yeah. in the gut, which could be bad or good. I mean, it could be used as an antimicrobial agent sure. or as a way of promoting diversity. Or I don't know. All I know is that right. there is a lot of potential. No, it's definitely worth looking at and considering. I mean, that, that's especially with autoimmunity, it's so prevalent nowadays. Everyone's oh, well, got yeah. the autoimmunity is everywhere. Everyone's got something. That's really fascinating. You know, it's not quote unquote autoimmune related, but um, last year I was about to go and sit with mushrooms um, with a friend of mine, both going into it for the same reasons, just wanting to process life and kind of sit and deal with our stuff more or less. And um, unfortunately I felt like I was, I was getting sick fully. Like I was fully getting sick. I could just tell, I was like, oh, like the day before I'm like, oh, I'm getting a sore throat and it was starting to come and I was just starting to feel like crap. And I was really on the fence of like, should we do this? Or I don't know if I want to go into a psychedelic space and be sick. Like I just, that's not really my jam. You know, <laughs> I'm not really looking forward to that. And we decided to do it. Um, and it was remarkable. I sat with, with psilocybin mushrooms and halfway through the journey, I realized I was like, I'm starting to feel better. And I don't know why, but I'm not feeling as sick. And then by the end of the journey, five hours later, six hours later, my sore throat symptoms were gone. I was, um, so like I said, it's anecdotal, anecdotal, but I, I was very surprised that by the end of the ceremony and by the next morning, I was 100%, like I wasn't sick anymore. I was like, wow, that's never happened. Like I've never been able to reverse something um, from eating something I, I've taken, I'm a Chinese medicine practitioner. So like I, yeah. I'm into herbs, I'm into lifestyle, dietary stuff. I eat all my ginger and I'm so like on board with, with that methodology. And, um, it was amazing, like how much better I felt. And it was that always stayed stay with me. I kind of got, uh, got my mind thinking. And then I started, you know, really diving into Paul Stamets work, who's the mycologist and he does all mm -hmm. of this stuff. He's got so much host defense, right? His whole lineup is about mushrooms and the, the immune boosting response. So in any case, um, that is fascinating in terms of that research. That's so. Are you gonna with you going into the research, you know, field and and doing this? Are, do you is this the kind of stuff you kind of want to like look into? Is this the kind of stuff that you want to start like searching for? Yeah, this is definitely um, a topic that's near and dear to my heart, yeah. and um, it's. I don't know if low hanging fruit is the right term, but it's um, it has a lot of potential for novel findings. Yeah. Um, of course, it's challenging to 
do any research with psychedelic substances uh, yeah. without DEA and FDA approval, which is one of the reasons I've decided to focus on the combo for now yep. because it's currently legal. Um, yep. I'm a practitioner, so I have access to um, yep. people that are experiencing it, you know, frequently. Um, and you know, I I haven't gone like a conventional academic route, and I yeah. don't know if I ever will. And yeah. part of that is because I don't know that I'm healthy and resilient enough to make it through a graduate degree. Um, and I also don't know that I need to. Um, so my intention is to be in this sort of quasi academic role um, where I'm able to pioneer research and. Yeah. Um, perhaps fund it with some of my ventures like Entheosin. I would. My dream is to eventually for Entheosin to be um, a, a powerhouse for actually funding and facilitating research towards mental wellness on alternative methods like combo, like float tanks, like meditation, right. maybe even psychedelics. We have enough money at that point to jump through all those hoops. Um, so I love. I love for it to eventually become. Or you know, split off into like a nonprofit research foundation or something where, you know, I can probably play some role in facilitating the research and planning it. And having a science background makes me better than just like a random business person right. that maybe doesn't understand how research sure. and grants work or you know IRB process. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm probably not going to get a PhD just because yeah. I don't I don't know that I need to honestly. I could I can continue to learn. Um, the stuff that's on the internet with uh, you know scientific literature and PubMed and yep. conferences and yep. peers and you know why why do I need to suffer to to just keep learning? Fair enough, and and uh, good on you for having that foresight because I I can relate to it fully. Um, I never wanted to be a doctor like a, an MD. It was never like my thing. But I remember going into Chinese medicine school. I'm like, hey, this is going to be four or five years. It's going to be a lot of money could I just go that other route? And I had the same thoughts kick up for me. I was like, I don't think I have the constitution to actually do what MDs do. And my program wiped me out, you know, five years of acupuncture school. Like I was heavy inflamed mentally, like not in a good place when I got out. So good for you for, (laughs) for having, like I said, the foresight to realize that you don't have to suffer necessarily to, to, to continue to do the work that you're, you're doing. That's really cool. I, I thought about, you know, why, you know, what is it that I would actually want to get out of a, a graduate degree? Yeah. And I thought of two things, and one of them was to further my education yeah. and, the, and, and also to gain research experience, and then the other was to feel validated. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's sure. not really a good reason <laughs> to um, put myself through six years of pain. Right. And I'm like, well, whatever, what if, what if I, uh, what if I just pioneered and like just did just yeah, learn just how to do research through mentorship yeah. and and then made accomplishments that gave me credibility and what if people respected me because of that and not because of the suffering I did to go through a graduate program yeah. I really don't think that it always translates necessarily yeah. from school to like capability of being able to make make any difference in the world you know agreed yeah no like I said very good um backtracking a hair so Talking about um, DMT and 5-MeO-DMT, so dimethyltryptamine is the, the, the DMT, but I'm unclear on this. The, the, the fully, I know that structurally they're different, but I don't really know the difference and like where you find all that, everything that I know about it in terms of how they differ has come from like episodes of like Vice and documentaries and things like this where I've seen 
Um, I think it's the Sonoran Desert Frog where they pulled 5-MeO-DMT off of that frog. Um, and then DMT, I've heard, is you know found in ayahuasca. So can you flush that out um, and talk about, for the people that don't know, people that are totally green to this topic, but talking about you know DMT, what it is, where it's found, and then the difference between that and 5-MeO-DMT and where that's found and where, where, you, where that's sourced. Yeah, totally. So um, both of those molecules are found in nature. Um, you know, I'll just refer to regular DMT as NNDMT okay. versus 5-methoxy-DMT. Okay. Um, while they're structurally very similar, uh, the experience is different for sure. Because people always, you know, say, oh, I did DMT. And I'm like, well, was it was it 5-MeO-DMT or regular? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And I'm like, okay, well, you would know if you smoke 5-MeO-DMT. <laughs> yeah. Because um, experience is different. I mean, there's some overlapping similarities, but it's a, kind of a different journey. Um, as far as where they exist in nature, so uh, DMT is, you know, largely found in a lot of different plants and animals. Mm-hmm. Um it seems like all of all living organisms, including bacteria, have the right uh, enzymes and starting materials to produce DMT. So there is a theory that potentially every living creature might be producing DMT to some extent. Um, it's not quite understood what the role of DMT is in the human body or even plants. Um, and... There are some plants that also contain 5-MeO-DMT, like Yopo mm-hmm. um, and Wilka and so, some Amazonian plants and probably others in p- yeah. parts of the world. And then there is the Sonoran Desert Toad, which is currently the only known animal to contain a psychedelic alkaloid. Yeah. Um, and there's also synthetic uh, uh, versions, of course, which some people prefer because it's more standardized and, and there's concerns also about the ecological impact of milking the toads and right. stuff like that. Can I ask um, a, a quick quick question on that? Just yeah. And this is probably going to be a stupid question, but I have thought about this repeatedly, and I would just love to know if you know. So given that the that toad or the frog has that compound in its skin and in, in its system, fundamentally I've always just been curious, does that mean the toad, if it's in it, if it's if it's a part of its body, does that mean that the toad is essentially experiencing a psychedelic like experience? I mean, is there a way to even know that? But I always just wonder if your body produces it, would you would the toad just be, you know, on a journey twenty four seven for its entirety of its life? That molecule might facilitate a normal state of consciousness that we would consider psychedelic for us because it's a non-ordinary state for us. Fair enough. But they, they might be operating in a different spiritual plane because that is a normal integrated right. part of their consciousness. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't either. <laughs> I, I wasn't I figured there wasn't science behind it, but it's a question that I'm always like, so is the frog always like on the journey? Like, I mean, we don't even case. know what the frog's experience is right. like any, without the DMT. Correct. Like, fair enough. Yeah, um, <laughs> it'd be fun. It'd be fun if we could. Yeah, talk if we could to find them, out, right? To them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, totally. So, in any case, so yeah, I didn't want to stop you completely, but just yeah. So keep going. So. Yeah, and then um, you know, so there, DMT is um, something that is is present in ayahuasca brew. Mm-hmm. It is not present in the ayahuasca vine. So this mm-hmm. is something that people are sometimes confused about. So ayahuasca as a brew generally consists of two plants. Sometimes there's more depending on the shaman and the, the area, the region. And the, the DMT containing plant can be different depending on each brew. Right. But um, most often you have 
a DMT-containing plant, usually to Chacruna or Psychotria veritis, and then you have the ayahuasca vine. Now, the ayahuasca vine is what, it's like where the magic happens, because if you eat the, the Chacruna DMT plant on its own, we have an enzyme in our guts called monoamine oxidase, and it metabolizes and breaks down the DMT before it's ever going to reach our brain, um, which is why we can eat things like oranges that have DMT in it and not have psychedelic experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ayahuasca vine has um, these molecules called monoamine oxidase inhibitors. There's a couple different um, beta-carboline harmala alkaloid molecules in there that do this, and they somehow discovered that when you mix the two, the MAOIs or the the enzyme inhibitors in the ayahuasca vine, Mm -hmm. they potentiate the DMT in the other plant and allow it to be sort of protected until it reaches um, the brain, which then produces the psychoactive experience. Now, I've heard some people say that ayahuasca on its own doesn't produce a psychedelic experience. That's absolutely not true. I have done it. Mm -hmm. Um, I did a ceremony called Natu Mamu which in the, in the Shuar tradition is when you take just the vine. And it's actually a pretty obscene um, ceremony where you're like drinking like liters and liters and liters of this brew and, and alternating between purging and drinking. And there's someone yelling at you to keep drinking. And it's, wow. it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a shit show. <laughs> yeah, I call it, it the, Shuar, like... the Shuar frat party is oh, what I call it. Oh my God, it sounds um, awful. <laughs> but I did that twice and it was a very unique experience having just the vine and it is definitely psychoactive on its own there was nothing else added in that brew except uh-huh. the vine so to clear that up for anybody that feels that yeah, um it's not the vine's not act it, it definitely is it's got i mean the thing is the maois they also block the degradation of your own neurotransmitters such as mm. serotonin and dopamine mm. and norepinephrine and and other tryptamine molecules and so if you take an maoi on its own which, you know, there are drugs, antidepressant drugs that are MAOIs. Yep. Um, they elevate your endogenous sort of experience of ex- your own neurotransmitters, mm. which I find really cool. Yeah. yeah, it is cool. You're getting high off your own juices, essentially. Yeah. So, wow. yeah, that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> wow. No, it's, um, it's really fascinating. So with the – when you say this experience is different um, – you know, the, what was it called? NNDMT, which is the, mm-hmm. the like the quote unquote regular and then the 5-MeO-DMT. So yeah. collectively, um, again, this has all been secondhand from people that I've spoken to that have said that it's different. Um, so can you, in your experience, how are they different? Um, it, you know, and I know it's hard to like encapsulate the psychedelic experience, but just in sure. the broad stroke, you know, best yeah. way possible. So the NNDMT, there's a large range of experiences that you can have. And um, I would say it's, you know, unless you're completely blasting through, it's very much like a strong mushroom experience as far as the visuals, the body feeling. Um, And then when you kind of go a little further in the journey, there's sort of strange spaces that you can get to Mm -hmm. where you're perhaps encountering entities or beings or you're looking at what looks like almost like organic uh, machinery or mm-hmm. um, like robotic like organisms or, yeah. or something weird like yeah. that. These alien worlds, um, you know, people can have full-blown visions where there's 
situations happening and they're able right. to see clearly right. uh, a vision. With 5-MeO-DMT, you kind of just take the elevator straight to God. Mm-hmm. Um, now, people can have this experience if they have a full bl- breakthrough with NN, regular DMT, where mm-hmm. they kind of push through the veil and they're in this white light and they've, they have complete ego dissolution where they have no sense of self, they have no sense of body, they are like sort of merging with a yeah. uh, source. That can definitely happen with NN DMT, but that's pretty much mostly the experience you get with the 5-MeO-DMT. There's no aliens, there's no weird world, there's right. there's really not nothing to like spend time looking at. It's mm-hmm. like you just get launched into like immersive white light. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had a couple of 5-MeO-DMT experiences and they are some of the most profound experiences I've ever had and I've done plenty of psychedelics. Yeah. And um, certainly, you know, for me, like... Uh, Forgetting who I was, what I was, that I was even a person, and just experiencing my energy as expanding and um, a part of this sort of globulating web of iridescent white infinite light, Mm -hmm. and feeling the vast expansiveness of that, and having having an experience where there wasn't a separateness between me and the white light that I was experiencing myself as the white light. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many people would describe that as like merging with God, uh, merging with source, you know, um, having an ego death experience or something of that, you know, know, along the lines of that. And um, yeah. And then when you come back, it's, it's deeply shifting for people. It can be disorienting for people because it is hard to land from that to to leave your body and then come back and reorient to the sort of mundaneness of everyone around you and and their you know yeah. we get so used to this existence and when you can take a step back and realize like holy cow like this is like a program that I'm getting to participate in and and live in this body and right. um yeah I can go a lot of different directions for people but in my case I just felt really inspired and grateful and I, I felt like I was on ecstasy for the next two weeks and I was sharing the experience with everybody because it was so yeah. earth shattering for me and I was like calling my mom like you'll never believe it and she's like that's nice honey like is that safe you know yeah like, yeah fair enough sharing it with people I probably shouldn't have been sharing it with but um yeah. it, it can be a profound experience yeah that's um the shaman I've only sat with ayahuasca twice and um the shaman that I worked with, he was, he was, I asked that same question. He had a very, like, very, very shaman Zen kind of answer, you know? And I said, so what's like, what's the difference? Cause I, at the end of the ceremony, he was talking about five, five MEO DMT and, um, he had access to the Sonoran frog. And when I asked him, he said, well, he's like, if you think of ayahuasca, it's sort of like conceptually, he's like, it's like the mother earth experience. It's more terrestrial. Like what you said, there's, there's going to be it's kind of organic and vine-like and you're going to be seeing things um, kind of in the what you would call the quote-unquote terrestrial level. Yeah. He's like, that medicine is Father Sky. Like you're up in, mm. He's like, you're up into the ether and it's expanded and just completely different. He's like, yeah, ayahuasca is like Mother Earth. That's like Father Sky. He's like, so think of yeah. it like that. And I was like, oh, that's a cool way to at least, you know, conceptually think about it. Um, but but it's fascinating because I think that's a thread people have talked about, the people that I've connected with, and they say they've partaken in this medicine. 
Um, and they've had very profound, I mean, ayahuasca changed my life, you know, two, two sessions with that. Um, my daughter was hospitalized when she was very young and she's completely great now. Um, no underlying condition, but she was hospitalized for a month and we spent a month in the hospital. And I remember just being not right from it afterwards. You know, that there was just, like you said, the trauma, trauma was quite real. And, um, I had a dream about ayahuasca during that time. And that was like, I had a, in the dream, a woman was singing to me in an ayahuasca song. And I remember waking up thinking like, was that a hint that I should probably go sit with that? Two, three months later, you know, it showed up and I, it did two sessions. It really helped me. It like resolved that trauma and helped me see it in a way that was, um, beneficial and harmonious. You know, it's like, it Mm -hmm. was, there was growth to be had from it, but the other side of this is when I've talked to people about the five amino DMT, much like what you have said, it's completely different. There's, it's a completely different frequency. It's a completely different range, and people have a very different experience, and they sometimes have trouble plugging back into what you would call the the regular three D reality, just because it's um it was so foreign. It was so different. Yeah. So, um, Caitlin, we're kind of at our at our window here, and that's strictly only. I would talk to you for I could talk to you for hours, but I have um. I have Papa life duties of Papa (laughs) call soon. So, um, is there any parting words or ideas that you would like to leave the listeners with, you know, um, just in regards to your experience or things for people to consider as they potentially explore this world? Hmm. Um, one of the things that I like to remind people is that, you know, while you're on your healing journey, just keep going. Don't Mm -hmm. stop. Don't be discouraged because, you know, it's a really long journey and it takes a lot of work and it's not linear. And I just want to remind people that they're always worth it. They're worth the effort and the sacrifice of, you know, putting themselves in, you know, situations that they might be scared or uncomfortable or um, inconvenienced by, you know, changing your lifestyle or your diet or or the way that you show up um, in a relationship or whatever and just reminding people that there's nothing more precious than health and happiness. And those two are absolutely um, linked, of course, and uh, required for each other. And just, yeah, hoping to remind people that they're powerful and that they have the strength to get to a place where they're going to be able to thrive and be happy. Yeah. Um, and if anyone wants to connect with me, I am happy to connect, um, probably the best way is, is through my website, uh, entheozen.com. It's E-N-T-H-E-O-Z-E-N, entheozen.com. And you can reach out to me, you know, through email there. Um, you know, you can also look at our products. And then I have other interviews and, and podcasts. I have a YouTube, uh, YouTube channel where oh, I have great. videos on different, like, supplements and different modalities and just... It's, it's a growing channel, so it's not like super decked out yet, yeah. but Same with there's a <laughs> lot of resources that I like put out there on the internet through my website and my YouTube channel just to share empowering information so that you can take that information and integrate it into your understanding of health and wellness and create that for yourself. Absolutely. And you, you beat me to the question. That was my next question was just how can, oh, people, okay. how can people find you, which is great. Um, thank you for that, that little, um, that last bit of information. And so what about social media? Um, sorry, I have my gardeners here. I hope that noise right. isn't too loud. Um, 
but yeah, like social media, like where can people find you in terms of, do you have an Instagram? Do you have anything else that people can, can start following you? I, I technically have an Instagram and to be honest, I'm not very active because okay. I'm like, what am I going to do? Take pictures of supplements. <laughs> I, I guess I could do something with it. I have Fair a enough. Facebook. Um, okay. I also have a Twitter that I'm not super active on. Okay. Um, but yeah, face, our Facebook profile is mostly active and I post all sorts of really cool articles. We have a newsletter if you want to sign up for that. Okay. I don't send a lot of spammy stuff. Um, you know, if you type in Entheos in to Google, you're going to find me because it's a made-up Fair word enough. that I created. So <laughs> um, you'll find all things Entheos in related if you just Google that. And uh, you can always email me and ask me if there's a specific resource that you're looking for. Okay, awesome. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for your time and for the work that you're doing. I think it's fascinating work and um, God, so beneficial and so needed right now. So thank you for, for everything that you're doing and thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. I, I do this work not only for others, but for myself. Awesome. Thanks, Caitlin. Take <laughs> okay, care. Okay, thank you. All right, bye. Bye.